Welcome to Soccer Better Season 3. We're Liz and Laura Ellen. Liz is a lawyer and Laura Ellen is the scientist. We've put our education to use by digging into the analytical side of all things soccer. Each episode, we discuss a piece of soccer or sports research. Join us as we discover how we can all soccer better. Liz, we are back with Season 3, Episode 9 of Soccer Better. And this is a really good article. I think you did a good job. It's a doozy of an article for length. And um, except for the title, the title is Delightful. I know it's very short. I was looking at it before we started recording because I was like, do I need to do my breathing exercises? Uh, But I don't. Okay, so let me get into it so I don't forget. The title of our article for uh, this episode is Practice Instruction and Skill Acquisition in Soccer, Challenging Tradition. It was published in 2005 in the Journal of Sports Sciences. Uh, and the first author is Mark Williams. Uh, and let me tell you, Mark Williams does an excellent job of citing himself in this paper, which there's no shame in that. If your prior research is applicable to the current setting, you should for sure cite yourself. But also, the number of citations that an article has is very important. It's like an important metric for a lot of things. And so people like to inflate it by citing themselves. Oh, I learned so many things about like these nuances. I love it. Every time I feel like I know a little bit more. So if I ever have to review a paper, because I can't imagine writing one, but if I ever reviewed one, I'd be like, I know what you're trying to do here, sir. Oh, without a doubt. And right, again, there's nothing wrong. Oftentimes, and this is true of my own research, right? My previous research builds toward my future research. So in my future research, of course, I'll talk about what I've done previously and how what I've done previously contributes to like moving the work forward, right? That totally makes sense. But also, but also, right? Like it's like, oh, that person's paper was cited 25 times. I think this paper was cited almost 50 times. Oh, that's really interesting. Oh yes, but then this person cited themselves a bunch. Anyway, we should definitely get into the article because this is not interesting anymore. (laughs) That's right. We'll we'll find our next soapbox and it's going to be a doozy. Yes. So what Mark did, which I thought was really interesting. So I know that in previous episodes, we have talked about the different types of reviews that you can do and systematic reviews and meta-analyses. And what this paper is... This paper is just a selection. It's just um, a synthesis from uh, Mark's perspective, the author's perspective on this topic. There is no systematic process here, but it's still really interesting because he has a lot of sources. Um, I am assuming that his pronouns are he, him. I apologize if if they're not. I couldn't find them anywhere. But anyway, um, Yeah, so there's no like systematic process here. Uh, The way this paper is set up is uh, they have, what, four myths that they talk about in coaching, in um, soccer, and they talk about how research, um, uh, you know, contradicts the myth or like um, common knowledge that we have uh, for, for soccer coaching. So Liz, what did you think about kind of like the premise of this article? I mean, I find it I find it incredibly interesting because I'm just an observer who likes to comment on things, right? Like I love to 
see what's going on. And then when I feel like I have enough knowledge that I can contribute, I will gladly just spout off. I will stand on a soapbox. I will sit on the sidelines and make snarky remarks. Now, I understand I'm not always right and I'm more than willing to continue to learn, but I love just like commenting. I am the epitome of the uh, the Muppet characters in the theater and they're up there saying things. It's me. That's who I am. I'm also kind of curmudgeonly, so I totally would fit in with them. We'd be best friends. Um, I, I just, I really liked going through this and seeing where he talked about, you know, these are, this is what we have seen um, historically from coaches and that this is what may have influenced it, you know, not only just history, but if you're trying to emulate a certain person, a certain coach that you admire and trying to really challenge that thought of like the coach knows best, which I think that everyone's being challenged more and more on what they assume they know or why they think they know something. And I think it's great that these questions are being asked and some of it there were like clear distinctions like it just doesn't really match up with the research and some of it was you know like it depends a little bit this is something that you can incorporate but it shouldn't be the only way that you coach so I was really entertained by by the narrative that went through these examples yeah and I think so first before I forget you need to definitely give yourself some credit right you are like a well-educated thoughtful person and have quite a um, critical eye. And I mean that in the best way, right? Like you are able to think critically and analyze things. And so that's why we're doing this. So you definitely need to give yourself some credit. Um, But yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you about this paper. And I also think that, um, so, so kind of the introduction before they get into the myths, Uh, they support this or or they make an argument, right, that elite players spend a lot of time uh, doing doing, like soccer-related activities. And so they talk about individual practices um, and team practices, and then there's match play, of course. Um, But but really kind of what they drill down into is this idea of, of skill acquisition And where does that skill acquisition occur when you're looking at elite versus sub-elite players? Which, again, we've talked about this in other episodes. You know, what are the things that make this distinction between your elite players and your sub-elite players? And um, the, the argument that they put forth here is that elite players have way more access to um, coaching time in team practices. Um, which I and and higher levels of individual practice, which I also thought was was interesting. Um, what did you think about kind of this like underlying premise of like, okay, this is why it's important to focus on coaches and um, like that aspect of it? Yeah, I mean they threw out a lot of really big numbers. So at the like the Premier League level, the European Premier League level. Um, by the time you're 16, you spend about 10 years playing soccer um, and, you know, taking it, you know, to a broader group that like once you're 18 years old, um, if you're doing any kind of professional or semi-professional play, um, that you've accumulated like 
thousands and thousands of hours. And so the difference between the groups ends up being, and it's roughly even, so it's about two to three hours per week between each level. But when you add that up over someone who's 18 years old, so, I mean, let's assume that you played since you were born, just because it's easier to do, you know, the math. It just, the amount of time that you have to spend, like, it ends up being, um, like, about 2,000 hours difference between the different levels. Um, and it's two to three hours per week. And thinking about what, like, my high school life was and anything that I wanted to be good at, like, if I felt like I was okay at it, do I really want to spend two or three more hours and then if I think that I'm really interested in it but I'm not good at it so am I now willing to spend four to six more hours just the the practice piece of it and team practice specifically so that that was the biggest indicator um yeah team practice is just incredible like showing up consistently for for the group effort is just something I I don't know like that's a lot of time to have all those kids together yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, at, at some point, and I don't know, I can't remember where it was in the article, if it was at the beginning, but it's really like identifying in kids pretty early on, like, ah, oh, shoot, I'm, I should have written it down, like this phrase, it was like the rage. Did you pick up? Anyway, it was like this, like, internal passion, right, that these kids have. Oh, yeah. To just like push themselves and they're just like so passionate about being excellent they're so passionate about increasing their skills that it just that they're willing to write put in all that time and effort um so anyway so i think this is like a good introduction uh to this article so let's dig into the myths because i think they're super interesting um and we have lots of notes i uh i know that you have lots of notes i also have lots of notes so why don't we just start with the first myth? So the first myth is demonstrations are always effective in conveying information to the learner, which I thought this was super interesting. So Liz, what were some of your like thoughts around this myth? So I, if I had to give you an off the cuff answer about how to teach someone, I 100% would have been a demonstrator. But if you ask me to think critically about how I learn, it is very much how they got to, you look at the the pivot point. So instead of showing someone how to kick a ball, you show someone what their foot looks like when it touches the ball. That's the one thing you show them. Like you show them pictures of that. So then they can figure out what their body motions are to get them to that point. I'm a person who's like, this clause is always going to matter in a legal contract. So, you know, here's you know, 15 different ways to say things that are good for our company, but make sure you find that clause. So, right, demonstrations don't work for me. I'm a doer. I have to have the flexibility to uh, find the right answer for me, but I need to know what the critical area was. And so I thought it was interesting, the breakdown of that, that a full demonstration doesn't really get you there as much as either seeing the end result or seeing a pivot point um, gets you much further for uh, being able to to replicate the the move. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's like a great summary. 
And, and one of the points that they make is when you show an entire demonstration, when you show like the entire process of like, okay, this is what a throw-in looks like, right? Um, players may be focusing on the wrong aspect of the throw-in, right? Like they may think about like, oh, like what are their feet doing, right? Or where are their hands on the ball? But maybe, right, the most important aspect or the, or the aspect of the throwing that you want to for- focus on is the, the um, snap of the core, right? Like that, that motion that, that you do to really, like, get the ball to go during a throw-in. And you can't see me, but I'm doing the motions of a throw-in as I'm talking about this. So I'm learning how to snap right now. Yes. Uh, well, I'm not going to do it right now because, the, you know, then I'll, like, run into my microphone. But, I yeah, and I thought that was, that right, that was, like, super helpful. I think they also highlighted the importance of problem-solving. So allowing people to, and allowing players to think about like, okay, how would I incorporate this in different scenarios? And that was kind of a theme for this one, I think. It's not just about how do we get, you know, how can you like do a pass when it's uh, 10 yards on a flat, very even surface with short grass on a dry, sunny day, right? But it's also like, what does it look like to pass in the mud? Or, you know, like when it's pouring down rain, right? These problem-solving things. um, So different scenarios, which that comes up later again. And also this like learning, right? So I found it super interesting how they talked about, it's not just um, about skill acquisition, but then how can you apply that in different scenarios? And I thought that was just so, you know, I think about, right, I think about how I learn. I also have had some friends, so like most, just quick side note here, right, like most medical programs are pretty didactic. You know, you like sit in a lecture and you listen to the person talk and you like write down your notes, right? I had a couple friends who did um, a physician assistant program, which is uh, kind of similar to to a physician, um, and everything was um, uh, problem based. So they would get these like case examples, and that is how they learned about different diagnoses. That's how they learned different like clinical skills is by like going through these like it's called problem based learning, um, which is like super interesting. But then like how do you take that and put that on a soccer field, right? Um, So anyway, uh, that's what I found uh, the most. And then opportunities for feedback, right? I thought that was super, like, creating this, like, learning environment, which feedback, again, comes up. I think it's in the last um, myth. I think so, too. Um, So I did have one more question for you, though. So they talk about how... So the myth is that, you know, demonstrations aren't as effective as everyone thinks that they are. But one of the sentences they say is that a demonstration is likely to be more successful when you already have like the base strategy figured out. So for me, like I get that I can like show them like your foot should hit the ball this way. Like just show them that one pivot point, but I'm not sure. Like, how would you marry those two things to say that now that you have the base skill and what is that base skill? Is it just hitting it the right way? Is it knowing that you've got the snap and then showing them a full demonstration? Like, did you understand how those two could work together? Cause it, it sounds like they can work together, but I just felt like you were, he was telling me two contradictory things. 
Yeah, I, so I think I interpreted that also within the context of the next myth, but I, I think it is a bit like context specific. So are you dealing with, um, I don't know, like four or five, six year olds, right? Like certainly like four or five, six year olds, like you, I can imagine, right, that, like, attention spans are super <laughs> tiny. And uh, I, start, I I mean, I even remember being in high school at a soccer practice and one of my fellow uh, players was distracted by a butterfly. So I can't even, you know, in high school. So I can't even imagine, right, like, six-year-olds, right? And that's really where you want to focus. Like, okay, you know, when you're doing an in-step pass, this is exactly where, like, you want to get your foot to hit the ball, right? And, like, breaking it down into this. So so that was kind of my interpretation of that, okay. that it is, like, context-dependent. And I think... I guess my also kind of um, interpretation um, or, or takeaway from this myth was that uh, that maybe that there are more times that coaches can rely on verbal instruction, especially when you get to older players, that maybe like you don't need to stop the whole thing and like be like, and this is how I want you to like throw in the ball. Like maybe it's just like a verbal thing. Okay. That may, yeah. I, okay. I don't, I mean, maybe I'm I wrong. I could marry but those that two things kind of and my... see that like they would tell me how to kick the ball. Like I'm just trying to think how some, how I would learn. I've just talked about like, I would expect someone to show me, but I'm not, that's not the kind of learner I am. So the verbal thing makes a lot of sense to me. If they were to tell me your ball should hit here or your foot should hit the ball here, you're likely to get this kind of arch. And then the next step would be, okay, now that you've done it a couple of times in a couple of different areas, um, this is what I'm seeing like about your posture or about, you know, your core or whatever. Okay. That makes more sense. Thank you. Great. See, all the answers are here on Soccer Better. Okay. Absolutely. Myth number two. Absolutely. Okay. Myth number two. Specific blocked practice of a single skill is essential for learning. Ooh, man. Let me tell you, reading this section, I had many, many flashbacks of uh, <laughs> middle school soccer, soccer practices. Let me tell you. Oh, yeah, my I think, goodness. I think this might be the one that would be the hardest to get a coach to change. To say that... Um, for better retention and for to have a more creative player, which, by the way, I think that all of these uh, myth buster, myth busting skills or whatever revolve around getting a more creative player who has better uh, reaction times, um, isn't as reliant on just like, I'm a forward, I go to the net. I, you know, like what those things. Um, this one has to be one of the hardest to change that you need to say, okay, this is, you know, 10 different ways that you're going to see a cross pass come out. You, this is 15 different ways that you might have to kick a ball depending on the terrain and the weather and, um, how, how much the field is used, like getting in that versatility, like you can teach a single skill, but you have to teach it. And like, 15 to 20 ways and like I'm making up that number right like I'm just saying like it has to be a wide breadth of of learning experiences and then um and I think I made a note about this that they said in this section and I think maybe in another section that 
you won't be good that day. You won't be good that week. Um, but when you go to your game in two weeks, all of that will is more likely to coalesce in your brain so that you react the way that you want to react in that instance. And I was like, man, how are you going to talk to a player who repeatedly doesn't get the skill that you're showing them? And then you say, okay, well, you haven't learned it on grass, but let's go do it over here on pavement. Okay, you haven't learned it when it's dry, but I heard it was going to snow. You know, there's going to be frost on the ground. So we're going to have an early morning practice. Like, I'm never going to let you feel comfortable and you're never going to feel competent. But I promise it'll get better. How do you have that conversation? Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, excellent summary uh, of of this myth-busting section. I think that's a good way to put it. Um yeah, I mean, and, and something that I thought about, because, right, I am thinking, so, you know, I played uh, a soccer th- elementary, middle, and high school, you know, and then I stopped. So, you know, and, and like, community soccer, right? I was not in, like, any kind of, like, elite travel, you know, like, we're the neighborhood kids coming together, wearing the t-shirts that are way too big, you know, the, the whole thing. Um, I mean, it's it's adorable. You were probably uh, just delightful as a soccer player. Sure, let's go with that. Okay. okay, so but but the thing that I think about with this and what it made me think about, I'm like, yeah, this would be awesome. But like, what late elementary, middle school community soccer program has enough resources to do this kind of thing, right? Like, has enough? Because I'm thinking like the drills, right, that we do that we would do during soccer practice, right? We do like, okay, we do our throw-in drills and then we do our shooting drills and then we do our passing drills, right? But like to incorporate all of those different things, you need like parents or older siblings or like high school students to come and like help out, right? There's like a lot of resources. So that was one thing I thought about. Um, And of course, then my brain completely forgot the other thing that I was going to say. So that is super great. But um, it made me yeah. think of something though for, cause it does say that like the team practices is so important. So like you could go home and do it yourself, but you do, you need like your parents and your, I don't know, your, your neighborhood kids to be willing to be like, Oh man, tomorrow morning, the weather is going to be weird. Like, can we kick around the ball, you know, for 20 minutes before we have to get ready for school? Oh man, I found a soccer field that's, you know, by a bunch of pine trees. It doesn't get enough sunlight and there's pine needles all over the place. Let's go kick around the ball. But you have to have like four or five people. Like you don't have to have a full team, but you've got to have a small side in order to meet the biggest, like the, in order to find the biggest difference, you have to have that small side to play with because the team dynamic was by far like leaps and bounds more um effective at determining whether you would be elite or sub elite yeah i remember that was what i was going to say so i think having those conversations that hey you're not going to be in your comfort zone hey i'm going to push you i think especially for you know and i think about high schoolers right i think especially for high schoolers when their brains are nowhere near fully developed right and and then you're saying like hey we're gonna push you we're gonna push you you are not going to feel confident in your skills right like you have to trust me 
that what we're doing and putting you in these different scenarios is going to work out, right? Like that's really hard. And I think that's where like rapport building is super important, right? Between the coaches, the assistant coaches and the players to say, hey, like I get that this sounds a little all over the place and I get that this doesn't seem to like fit the quote unquote normal way of doing it. But this is what we're going to do and trust us that this is going to pay off in the long run. And maybe it won't even pay off like in the next couple games, right? But maybe it's a long-term playoff, you know, payoff. Yeah. Maybe it's like when we get to the playoffs and we're traveling like an hour by bus and we like get to a field that like isn't as great as we're used to playing on because believe me, I have been there. You know, then you're, like, ready to do it. And you're like, hey, it doesn't matter. We're going to, like, take advantage of whatever we have. Um, okay, we can talk about this and we can reminisce about all the, you know, experiences I had playing high school soccer. But we don't need to go there. I mean, I was in marching band. We had to march on a lot of fields that were just not well-maintained. I get it. I, to- I totally am basically an elite athlete. We've discussed this before. Like, going to be a soccer star because of these random history facts. I believe it. Okay, so let's move on to myth number three. Myth number three, augmented feedback from a coach should be frequent, detailed, and and provided as soon as possible after the skill has been performed. Hoo-wee. Liz, when I read this, I was like, oh, tell me all the things. Tell me all the things. What did you think about this myth busting? Yeah, I mean, for me, like, this one, it was fine. I mean, it was more about, like, you need to give someone the time to uh, stew in their own juices and figure out why it didn't work or what part they've missed in the training and just really think through the possibilities before you go and talk to them. But, I like, I don't know. I get it. But if I had gone through and thought, okay, none of my passes connected to any of my teammates. And I thought of 10 reasons why I thought that was happening. And I and I did my analysis and I was like, oh, like I hit it the wrong part of my foot. If I didn't get a single one of those right or I got one out of 10 right, I'd be like, okay, obviously I don't know anything. So hmm, eh, I don't know. I think maybe this is a know your audience question mark. <laughs> yeah, uh, So I think for me, what was most interesting about this and kind of, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's again, it's, it's again, getting back to this idea and, and this is a recurring theme throughout this paper. Is it about oftentimes the way things, the way coaches have performed historically is to, uh, maximize performance kind of like in the moment, but what the authors here are arguing is for long-term skill acquisition and kind of creating that creative player. So in, in giving feedback, I, I thought of two things, two things came to mind. The first of which is I think for many coaches and maybe not intentionally, we can say that it's, it is not att- intentional, but I think there's this like ego trip. Right. That it's like, I'm seeing all the things 
and you as the players are not seeing any of the things. And so it is my responsibility as the person, right? Coaching is a hierarchy, right? The coaches are at the top, the players are at the bottom. It is my responsibility as the person at the top of the hierarchy and the person who is seeing everything to give you as much feedback and as detailed feedback and as much feedback as possible. So that's the first thing I thought about. I'm like, okay, this is a challenge um, for coaches to recognize that, hey, um, maybe, maybe like you're not all knowing and all seeing. Uh, but I also think to your point about uh, the quote unquote stewing in the juices, that sounds disgusting. You to should me. have seen her faces, guys. Ugh, so many faces. So gross. So gross. Phrased anyway, it I can think of well. like people who like older folks who have been like neglected, and that's what I think about. Like oh. with the bed sores. I know, right? I don't know. Okay. All right. Well, faces um, explained. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, but I do think there is benefit, and again, I think this is something that, especially, you know, I'm thinking about like middle, like later in middle school, early in high school, this is something that coaches really need to work with players to help them become more reflective and more like self-critical, but like not in a negative way, in a way that's constructive. And, and I think there are ways to do like self-feedback, you know, and to give feedback to others, of course, that is constructive and is saying like, hey, like, these are the things maybe I didn't do so well, but like, again, this is not a reflection on who I am as a person, right? Like this is just, this is what happened and this is how we work through this and this is how we become or how I become better as a player or can do differently. So my first proposition for soccering better, and I want to see what you think that fits into this. During practice, do you think that based on this section what a coach should be doing is talking to the bench, the people who aren't playing, who aren't performing, and saying, this is what went wrong. These are the things that I'm seeing about why it went wrong. Or even, like, asking them to, like, pipe in. But that, getting critical of your teammates, like, depending on your level, could get real could get real dicey in that locker room. May not make for a good atmosphere. But, like, having that conversation with the bench, letting the players play, and then when you're subbing people off, having someone come off, letting them get their drink, calm you know take a couple of deep breaths and be like hey let's talk about x pass after a number of minutes like i like for me i think that's the solution that i saw was determining when's the best time to talk to them and if you make it consistent then it's like you know that you have time to think and maybe cool down if you're you know you could be really upset at yourself um and that manifests itself in different ways and then and then confirming or getting the feedback to soccer better good idea bad idea yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a great idea. I mean, I I so I think about um, my soccer coach that I had my who I had my senior year of high school, and um, we were really successful, um, which I think there were a lot of reasons for that. But um, but he he was a silent coach while we were playing, like during games and things on the sideline. Uh, I mean, every once in a while he would like say something. But, like, when we would come off, it would be, like, our assistant coach who would be like, hey, let's talk about this, this, and this. Um, Which I think that, like, so I think that partially, like, addresses some of the hierarchy. But I do think it's important, you know, maybe it's not the the head coach, but maybe it's, like, an assistant coach. Or maybe you have, like, I don't know, 
for high school teams, maybe you have like a college person who is like your te- like team manager, or like an assistant coach, yeah. right? To take some of that power dynam- dynamic away, but like to facilitate those conversations because I do think that's really important. I also think, which they didn't talk about here, and again, right, like I never participated in like super elite uh, soccer, but they didn't talk about like giving praise and celebrating the things that players were doing well. I didn't see. Like, it wasn't like a highlight. It was, I felt like the feedback stuff was more, these are things you could do better in the future. Yeah, I think that they were sticking straight to technical stuff, trying not to get too far into um i don't know like the the feelings part of it um because there's a i mean for all of this there's a lot of things like are you a good demonstrator you know how do you talk to someone what's your tone of voice you know what decibel level like i think that there are a lot of like uh subjective things that uh i understand why they didn't address so i just took this to charlie and like especially because it was a long paper, and just think very critically about, and I think that's where they were coming from. Those are obvious, like, considerations, and you have to change it based on the age groups. Um, But I didn't see anything in this paper that, like, touched on those areas. Yeah, no, I think you're right. All right, myth number four. Prescriptive coaching is always better for skill acquisition than instructional, instructional approaches based on learning... By guided discovery. Goodness, that was long. Um, okay. Well, that's interesting. My note right after this one is coach has all the knowledge. So I guess that's where I got the omniscient piece earlier. Liz, what did you think about myth number four and busting it? I mean, these these do flow really well into each other. Um, yeah, I just, I think this was, I mean, it, it's one of the shorter sections Uh, For me, it was just, you know, not information overload from a coach and and really getting back to like point number one where you find that pivot point and focusing on something that is that they like giving them something to focus on that is a single point to focus on as opposed to saying, well, you have to put your foot like this and you have to make sure that the, you know, ball is rolling counterclockwise and make sure you're, you know, sucking in your abs and your right hand goes up and your left hand goes down and lead 90 degrees to the right, like whatever it is. Um, so for me, this was just, you know, knowing where to focus your energy when you're doing those communications that are going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I didn't have um, much to add other than, so, you know, this book has been around for a long time, but Pedagogy of the Oppressed is this philosophy and, and I'm not going to get into all of it but I highly recommend the book I I, finished, I read it a couple months ago now but you know it's really this idea that the teacher or like the person in charge right when we think about these power hierarchies is not the one with all the knowledge that are like that's like pour right it's this idea of like pouring into the empty vessel that is the students right um, that it's a back and forth Right. And students and players like have a perspective to contribute to the conversation. And and I think that's like that was like a big theme that I picked up on, on that. And again, it's this is all um, right. This is all determined also by a lot of by age. Right. It's like how old are the players that you're working with? Right. And like, how do you kind of 
navigate all of these things. I think also, how long have you been working with these players? You know, what kind of relationship do you have with them? Because you might be able to change your feedback style based on knowing how uh, these individuals react to different things. If you have a team that's made up of 90% of people who seem motivated in practice, if you're a little more aggressive, then maybe you're a more aggressive coach. Uh, if you start, you know, doing practices and you get feedback that that coaching style isn't working, like you might change your coaching style. So I think that was part of that section, but it was just, it was very short. It's like basically don't think that you're the end all and be all just because you're the coach. Like don't get too full of yourself. Agreed. Myth five, game intelligence skills are not amenable to practice and instruction. Dun dun. Who said what did that? You think was? Who said that? I mean, I guess somebody must have said it. Um, I don't know. I'm glad that those skills um, are are teachable. So they talk about like how everyone focuses on motor skills. Like you can learn most motor skills if you practice enough. Uh, you can learn those things, but the the game intelligence. Um, I think our most quoted one is anticipation. Like either you're born able to anticipate or you just can't anticipate, um, which doesn't seem to be true. And that's, that's wonderful because those little nuances really make some of the players stand out um, the theme of this paper as being more or less creative. So I'm glad to know that that is something that can be taught. Uh, do you think that that is something that the fans can be taught uh, so that we are better observers um, and can follow the game better? Yeah, I think so. I Yeah, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> I wasn't sure where you were going with that question, frankly. Uh, when you started, I was like, So oh. that we can jump on the field and be the star. Oh, okay. Uh, no. Um, no, that's interesting because, I, you know, I think the article that we talked about one or two episodes ago, you know, about FIFA and right this perspective mm. that the the uh, FIFA, the video game, that um, you know the increase in the proliferation of FIFA, the video game in the U.S. has increased uh, soccer intelligence among fans or, and and or fandom, I guess you could say. So, I mean, I I think so. I think it is something you know certainly that can be learned. Um, so, you know, as an example, and this is kind of like very endearing to my partner. So when my partner and I first met, uh, they knew nothing about the game of soccer. Um, and it was something that was very important to me, you know, something that I had played that uh, my sisters all played. And um, so they learned it. Uh, as so a way they to, yeah. So they right, and they were they were like, yeah, I'm a soccer fan because you're a soccer fan, and probably uh, eclipsed my own knowledge of the game, you know, pretty quickly. Um, but then, right, it's something that that we share together. So, you know, I I definitely do think it's something that's learned. It it does take effort though, right? Like it's not. I I don't. Know. Right. Like, especially like, I think the strategy behind like, okay, why, like, why do, like, 
why would you use this formation versus this other formation? And what are the types of players that are best suited to specific formations? Or, oh, yeah, that's a whole, yeah. that's a I mean, whole that's like a level. whole other level. Um, but I think like the general rules of the game and kind of like, oh, hey, you know, maybe we don't want to just like drive the middle, drive the ball down the middle of the field every single time because, right. oh, shocker, there's a lot of people there, right? Um, or um, as our favorite saying, and those of you who have been around for a very long time will remember this, but boobs over the ball I to avoid scream it all the time, all the time. All the time. Um, so anyway, so yeah, no, I definitely think so. And I think, you know, previous research has shown that as we've talked about um, in a previous um, episode. So yeah, Liz, I think you've had like two good examples of how we can soccer better. Are there any other like themes that you have for for? Yeah, I suffering just, better. I mean, I don't know. I think that I like the focus on creativity that this pl- that this paper gave because I think that um, in the soccer that I enjoy watching the most, it is when I'm going to see creativity. I'm going to see something unexpected. It is getting to see you know players that I know and I've talked to and they have good performances, but when they get to do something unique. And they make, and you can recognize that they've made someone else look good, that they've made a critical play um, because they were versatile. And I think that that is something um, that I've started to really value um, as someone who doesn't know tactics, doesn't know formation. I have no idea what the numbers on the back of your jersey mean, but I really enjoy. Uh, watching people do the unexpected. So I like that this player focused so much on creativity. Um, did you have any soccering better for us? Like I haven't given any more concrete things, but did you have any takeaways that you think people could pick up on? I think one of the things that, you know, certainly you and I, well, I, I won't make assumptions for you, but um, one of the things that I, um, I've pointed out of this podcast is to really present research in a way that hopefully is entertaining to some degree, but also digestible and, and applicable, um, to the, to our listeners. And I think when I think about coaches and, and again, you know, when I'm thinking about coaches, I'm often thinking about, you know, the community coaches who are volunteers who probably have a kid or two on the team um, and are, you know, like Googling, like, how do I entertain six-year-olds for an hour at soccer practice, you know? But um, so, so I guess like one of my hopes is to really, you know, hopefully the information in this article that we've talked about can provide at least additional considerations for, planning practices for thinking about how coaches interact with their players. Um, yeah. So I, so I think like that, right. It's like, I, it's about this incremental change. And so if you, as a soccer coach, like maybe at the beginning of the season, yeah, you still do like the blade, the, the block structuring, but maybe you try and like, do you like a short side or, or you find um, like a small group game that, you know, incorporates, both heading and throwing and 
um, you know, dribbling or, you know, something, right? Like, I, you know, finding ways to, um, within the resources that you have, you know, apply some of these principles. Um, you know, and I think oftentimes, especially for community soccer, as a coach, maybe it's best for you just to keep your mouth shut. Right. And I can say that as like, you know, when I was in college, I coached um, the one of the club teams for my high school during the off season. And I really failed at that. Like I was one of those coaches who was like constantly yelling on the sideline and right. Like I could have done better. I could have soccer bettered. Yeah. Granted, someone, you know, that, that was not said, like here's 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was 10 years ago. Yes. So. You know, right. And now but, you've evolved. Yeah. And if you coached a high school team again, you would probably be a little less chirpy and it would be probably more enjoyable for everybody. Probably, except on the car ride home when I would just then like be vomiting oh. everything I wanted to say during the game. That's but. fine. Call me. I love to just like listen <laughs> and be like, I totally understand. Sometimes you have to vent to get it off of your chest. And then you move on and you have to find those people who can listen and say, yeah, I get what you're saying. That sounds terrible. I also have an example or, you know what, let's get a coffee to make it better. And then you're just like, okay, like that's what it is. That's right. All right, Liz, anything else for this episode of Soccer Better? No, long article, longer episode, but just, I just really like how this one was written. It, it was, it was a nice flow great takeaways cohesive good article good job good job liz (laughs) all right liz well i will see you later bye-bye bye thank you to our host the beautiful game network bgn covers teams across the mls usl championship and usl league one check out podcasts and written content at bgn.fm you can follow us on twitter at bgn soccer better Head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to the show and leave us a review. Otherwise, let us know what you thought about this episode and be sure to share it with a friend. Remember, you can always soccer better. The music in our show is Empty Rooms by Booz Radley. Thanks to our sponsor, Roughneck Scarves, official scarf supplier to USL, MLS, and US Soccer. Get custom scarves for your group or team at roughneckscarves.com. Tired of the same old uniforms and cookie cutter templates from Nike and Adidas? Looking for a unique, completely custom kit for your youth club, Sunday league squad, adult, or even pro team? Icarus FC can help you create the kit of your dreams at an affordable price. Let them help you design your custom kit today at icarusfc.com.